Hello and welcome to the No Room for Doubt podcast. My name's Kyra Matthews. I'm a manifestation obsessive and I help creatives and independent business owners overcome self-doubt and anxiety so they can build thriving businesses online. So let's get into it. Hello friends, it's your favourite day of the week. It's podcast day. Thank you so much for listening. So in today's episode, I've got a really fun chat. This conversation was actually recorded back in April, but I'm recording the intro two days after the most incredible thing happened to me. I went and saw Beyonce live. Calypso and I, we went and saw Beyonce live. We were with other people, but I don't know if I have the permission to say their names out loud. So (laughs) if you're listening, I also appreciate you being there. I had the best time. But my soul has been kissed. My soul has been touched. You cannot be rude to me. You cannot push past me in the line in Sainsbury's. You cannot you know, be on the train and see me going for a seat and sit down before I get there. You cannot do that anymore. When I go into Pratt, they need to be giving me their free coffee. Like, you know, when you go into Pratt and like, I feel like they have an allowance of free coffees and every now and then they'll give you one. They're going to give it to me next because I have been touched by an angel, by a queen. (laughs) She was so good. I really want to see her twice and I get it like I've seen a couple of people on Instagram like going to see her and then booking another night to go and see her again because I do get it like you have to take it in you're just in so much awe like I there was a point in the night where one of the people that we were with was like Kyra like like look at your mouth like my mouth was like hanging open I'm standing there with my phone just like in my hand recording my eyes are like wide open and I'm like oh my gosh am I actually seeing this woman like this woman perform this way like she's insane and it's like when you look at Beyonce you're looking at somebody who has done years and years and years of honing her craft being the best in the world when we were at future self nights one of the questions that i posed my guests was when did beyonce become beyonce like the legend that we know her as today when did she become beyonce did she become beyonce when she performed that tour world tour um renaissance Did she become Beyonce when she performed at the Super Bowl? Did she become Beyonce when she released Crazy in Love? Uh, Naughties, babies. Or did she become Beyonce when she was alone in her room and nobody knew her name? And she had to decide that she was going to be this hugely talented, skillful, successful person that we all know her today. And it's so interesting because if if her past self, like if her younger self was like, I'm going to win a Grammy for my music, like millions of people across the world are going to know my name. All of that would have been true. She wouldn't have been lying. She would have just been about to do it. 
So I find that really interesting for those of you who are listening to this and you have big dreams for yourself. Maybe you're afraid to scare it, say it out loud. Maybe you're even afraid to admit it to yourself. That's a toughie. I just want to ask you this. When did Beyonce become Beyonce? And would it have been worth it to her to define herself as that successful person, even when none of us knew her name, so she could have the confidence to go out and win the Grammys and do the Super Bowl? That is just a slight little tangent, but it is a really nice way to frame the context of the conversation that we're having today. I have been recently writing and thinking about how I talk about Stuck to Unstoppable. Many of you know that Stuck to Unstoppable is my coaching program and I've been running Stuck to Unstoppable for about three years. So I've really grown as a coach. I've learned a lot. Every client that comes into the program shapes it and teaches me something and they add something to the program. It's got all of these fingertips left on it now and it's made this made these beautiful impressions and as I was thinking about the program I was thinking about how so many people come into that program with their own insecurities their own things that the world has told them is wrong about them and if they could only change this thing that was wrong about them then they'll be successful then they'll be better if only they were more organized if only they did things on time if only they put themselves out there you know whatever your flavor is and there's this there's this sense that you are doing it wrong and there's people on the other side of the world or on the other side of your screen even who know how to do it right who have got it all down and who have figured out this secret source to life and success and money and productivity and what I've seen in my own life as I come to terms with my own neurodivergentness I hope I can say that if I'm talking about myself <laughs> the way that I present with the things that I'm going through and I guess with my mental health and what I've learned working with my clients who all come from different perspectives and backgrounds and some have kids some don't you know all some work jobs some work full-time all these different things that make us different what I've realized is that so much of what we've been taught to believe that makes someone successful is completely a lie and actually by believing that you need to change something that is essential to you by believing that that is a thing that will stop you from achieving your goal and so you would have noticed that the theme of a lot of the interviews that I'm doing for season four are about dropping all of that like owning who you are seeing who you are and leaning into the beauty of that and I feel like this conversation is a great masterclass in exactly how to do that so please if you've enjoyed this episode (laughs) I just said if you've enjoyed this episode as if this was the episode this is like the longest introduction I've like done in a while (laughs) this is basically its own episode but I'm about to introduce you to my wonderful, intelligent, like so, so clever. I just felt like about 10 million IQ points more intelligent after this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stop talking. I can't even remember where I was going with that sentence. I was going to say something and I can't even, I've lost my train of thought. So without further ado, 
Here's an introduction to Nora. So Nora, to begin, please can you tell me who you are and what you do? Sure, thank you for having me today. My name is Nora Shamatsi and I facilitate change. Um, I've worked in a variety of organizations and industries from NGOs to big global corporations. And my specialism went under, you know, a few guises like bid manager, editor, program manager, pitch coordinator, stuff like that. But the broader theme has been always making change happen within the organization to attain specific Mm. business goals. I designed and delivered frameworks, train the trainer programs, workshop formats and workflows. And on the side, I worked as a script consultant, developmental editor and writer. And with my friends and business partners, I'm the co-founder of Realty Successful, a social enterprise geared towards bringing work-life strategies and frameworks to neurodivergent people. That's so cool that you used to work with script write- and script writing. That's my original profession, yes. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about that? Because I had like a little stint in script writing. It was, it lasted about a year, but I think that people who write scripts are like basically geniuses. So can you tell me about that? <laughs> I'm absolutely not a genius. It's something that happened. It was rather a happenstance in my in my life. Um, I got admitted to film school in my home country, Hungary, uh, for the first try, which was a surprise. I, you know, I just tried this. I love to make up yeah. stories, and I I love storytelling in in general. And um, that's how I started. And and practically, I. What I did for a long time was, was being a reader and being a, being a script consultant for uh, for broadcasters uh, like HBO, um, like uh, RTL and uh, the ProSieben uh, Z1 group. Uh, these are the, the major Central European um, broadcasters and also for, for um, you know, public broadcasters. Um, yeah. And I evaluated material to be turned into um, TV series or documentaries. And I also worked with directors, um, evaluating their work and bringing the most out of their scripts. Wow, that is so cool. Like, that is awesome. I didn't know that about you. So thank you so much for sharing because (laughs) I, yeah, I have always loved storytelling. It's always been a part of like me and my journey. And it's just really interesting to hear that you have that side of you and that broader like sense of creativity. How important has creativity been to you in your journey i know we're slightly going off topic for what we've come to discuss today but i'm just keen to hear about you as the artist and writer being a script writer is not really about the the art at least not for me it's also more it ties more into it's kind of you know systemizing uh behavior or drive uh that you want to build like a very neat structure that tells something from A to B using a Dan and Dan and Dan narrative or dramaturgy. And this is what has fascinated me for my entire life about stories that we can, you know, describe an entire world within just a very, very brief time. And we can just switch this this light bulb in in in, in people's minds about something that we want to convey. So you know, conveying a message and and also building structures has been the important part um, for me and the interesting part for me. And filling this up with emotion, filling it up with you know little things I gleaned from from others, everyday observations. I think that's the the art part of it, and that's where you can really hone the script. 
but I wouldn't necessarily call it creativity. It never really felt like that for me. It's more like being intuitive, being really observant and bringing that all together with the structure. Wow, that's beautiful. I mean, I love how you speak about it. Thank you. We've been connected through a mutual friend, Ginty, who I used to work with at ASOS. She introduced you because of the work that you've been doing in Weirdly Successful. I love the name. How did that come about? <laughs> well, it's, it's this process my co-founders and, and I share. My business partners, Adam and Livia, they, they knew really well what they did not want in terms of branding. Mm -hmm. So that's how we kick off the ideation phase, basically. And be it became very fast uh, that being weird is something we want to own and reclaim for all of us. We've heard people defined weird for us so often, filling it with a lot of negative connotations that we thought, okay, this is the moment where we realize we, want, we really want to own this. And then the name just came to Adam. Um, because those who are weird can be really successful. Mm. And yes, you can define success differently from the mainstream. So that's the gist of, of the name. For the outside world, uh, it will be weirdly successful even. You as a weird person, you know, you achieved something. But we won't let the outside world take the fun out of, of the weirdness. And all three of us have been truly weirdly successful in previous projects. And by combining our strengths and experience, we work directly with our neurodivergent clients to build, you know, personalized frameworks so they can meet their needs better and allow for a life they can truly enjoy, feel like themselves in and, you know, thrive and be really successful themselves as well. Amazing. That's so interesting. And could you want to just dive into some of the connotations that the world had put on that word weird and why it was important to you for, to reclaim that and to really own that yeah absolutely it, weirdness is 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 such an interesting thing because if you don't conform to the mainstream for example i like to play on playgrounds swing on swings this is part of my you know sensory stimulation and self-regulation it really soothes me but when people see um 38-year-old person playing on a playground, they just say, oh, why can't this person just, you know, grow up and behave in a grown-up way? Many people have very set ways of thinking of how others should look like, yeah. behave. And it's just so difficult because sometimes I just think, why can't we just, you know, leave each other alone and be different? Other ways they, they defined weird for us is when my business partners decided to, you know, found their original business on running a blog back in, in Hungary. This was a very weird thing for many because blogging is not a career or even building online courses. Yeah. That's not a career. You should work in nine to five because that's what, you know, the world tells you being a founder and entrepreneur and doing your own thing has been so weird for many people in a negative sense of the word. Whereas we all just feel fine being weird. So let, let us have it. Yeah, I love the way you've defined that about how 
you can do something that really feels good to your body and feels good to your sis- your nervous system and the processes and the life that you lead and other people can look at you and have that judgment and be like, that's really weird. It's really interesting because as you were talking, what came up for me is in the spring of 2022, I was diagnosed with PTSD and there was like some mm. fear, but also this relief because I looked back on my timeline and I was like, oh, like all those things that I thought were kind of weird about me, all of a sudden it all made sense. And it meant that I exactly. could care for myself and look after myself with this sense of, no, like I need to go on a walk and I can't sit by the, the computer for hours a day. And sometimes I just randomly get triggered by things that to other people aren't triggering and I don't spend that much time explaining it anymore but before where I had no idea what was happening it meant that you know I was even judging myself as wrong or as weird because I was having that experience and I didn't quite understand what was going on fully. That's so important what you mentioned because self-understanding and trying to understand others that's just facilitate this sort of reclaiming what weird is, what normal is for you, for others. And this is a very, very big component of, you know, getting diagnosed as neurodivergent as well. Mm. So it's also your experience. It's also, you know, the experience of people living with um, personality disorders, but it's also a a big, big part of being neurodivergent as well. Mm. I know that you said we're weirdly successful with you and your business partners. You are developing frameworks to support people to live weirdly unsuccessful, as you sort of put it. Can you tell me a little bit about (laughs) that work? What does that look like? And how do you support people to live in that way? Absolutely. So what we do is we combine our experience of... You know, Adam has a, a really strong background in academia in public speaking and in creating set frameworks. Libya has been a very successful author, blogger, and online course developer. And her online courses pertain to, you know, people's uh, goal setting, yeah. planning, goal attainment, and also well-being. And as I developed workshop formats and workflows, we just came together to combine these. So what we do is we look at the individual's neurodivergent presentations and we think of ways to how can we provide a better, more comfortable time management system for this individual and this individual's neurodivergent presentations. What are the accommodations that we can come up with for, for our clients and we work together with them to lead this process of discovery and then try to come up with a, with a plan that supports their presentations and their neurodiver- neurodivergent traits um, in the widest sense of the word. So it, it can range from finding the optimal software stack, for example, for productivity software, for personal knowledge management software, for project management softwares finding the right planner for this individual. What is the optimum hybrid between having a paper-based planner and having a digital planner? How could, you know, running a business on ADHD or autism or OCD or dyslexia look like for these people? How could they have a more sensory integrated experience at their workplace? So we work together with employers, employees, with individuals and 
with self-employed people as well who are entrepreneurs, founders, or have like a serious side hustle on the side. Everything that you're saying is making me so excited because I just like, as you're speaking, I have a million questions coming to the surface because I feel like this has been, Mm -hmm. many of my friends are having like these conversations privately and I know nationally it's also being talked about a lot but something that you mentioned there was neurodivergent presentation I know that especially for women they've been traditionally excluded from conversations about what it means to be neurodivergent how can we personalize our understanding of these conditions we have to go back a little bit to exploring the bigger picture in how women and how scientific research into how neurodivergence presents in women was neglected for uh, four decades. So stereotypes still abound. Um, You've probably all heard things like, oh, people with ADHD like to climb trees, run around screaming, disrupt the lesson at school, they are just naughty boys. Look at you, you sit prettily, you can't have ADHD. Or things like, oh, but you can't have autism. You know how to behave in group settings and can talk about emotions. Yeah, because emotions have been one of my special interests since forever. So, of course, I can talk about them. So, here we are in a very under-researched field where a lot of advice has been geared towards men presenting a specific group of neurodivergent traits. Also, society is generally more accepting if a man behaves strangely. The eccentric bachelor, the quirky uncle, the weird visionary are part of the, f- the male role repertoire handed down throughout generations. You know, what are women left with? You could have been in ancient Greece, a, a putia, a kind of medium talking to the god Apollo, or a prophetess like Deborah in the Bible. Bad luck, you weren't born in 500 <laughs> yeah. BC, I guess. Even in the early Middle Ages, European women had a lot more career choice and were allowed to run, for example, large religious domains. But then came the witch hunts, and since then it's simply not allowed to be just weird or nonconformist if you are female. But I digress. Um, the problem is compounded by neurodivergence being this um, buffet-style event where you come to a, a smorgasbord and you pick different little dishes and different flavors because neurodivergence is a really wide spectrum. So one-size-fits-all solutions will never work because every neurodivergent individual is very, very different and will react very differently to the same kind of of stimuli, for example. There are patterns, there are commonalities, but because chances are high that you have grown up masking and downplaying your neurodivergent traits, you'll have a widely different experience than other people with the same condition. And that's also very important. Not just, you know, the difference between how the different sexes present and how that's accepted by society, but also it really, really uh, boils down to the individual level. As your brain is quite literally wired differently, only your brain knows how different that different exactly is and what neural pathways are functioning in a different way what hormone and neurotransmitter levels are impacted and so on. That's why coaching, therapy, or medical treatment should be highly personalized and tailored to your experience and to your, to your needs. So this is, this is the reason behind. And you can't neglect this because A, most neurotypical advice is not going to work for you. And B, most generalized advice 
won't work for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Um, I so resonate with so much of what you're saying. And I think I came across an article and if I can find the article, I'll link it in the show notes, but it was talking about how ADHD in black women is often really hard to spot because culturally black women especially in the UK and America have conforming is such a big part of their identity in order to survive in the patriarchy that it's much harder to sort of um, identify in certain groups so I find it so interesting how your intersectionality really can interfere with when you get diagnosed how you get diagnosed what you get diagnosed with and what that journey looks like for you. If there's anybody listening and they're feeling like, hey, I think I might, you know, need some extra support in something or I might be needing to do something a little bit differently. How important does a diagnosis matter? I think many people might stop themselves from seeking support if they don't have a diagnosis, even if they do have a hint that they might want to try something new. What are your thoughts on that? It's a very, very complex topic. And it warrants a rather complex answer as well. I'll highlight why getting diagnosed matters and why in the end it's less Mm. consequential. But all parts of the answer will be equally important here. As with all aspects of neurodivergence, it is very true that there are no one-size-fits-all solutions at all. So, for example, if you have ADHD, you have ADHD whether or not you get diagnosis for it. Having a diagnosis doesn't make your ADHD appear out of nowhere. If you get a diagnosis for it, it's been there all along. So if you are in denial about it, or if you are afraid of getting diagnosed, it's it's merely confronting this mm. truth about you. Having words to call things what they are helps understanding. It helps self-acceptance. And it's crucial to seek solutions, because what you can't name, you can't help. But that's also mighty scary, and I understand it 100%. The fear of being put in a box, getting stigmatized and outcast within societies is still definitely there because of the so many stereotypes. Ultimately, if you go down the diagnostic path and get diagnosed, it is your choice and your choice only how much you disclose of your neurodivergence and to whom. The certainty is also somewhat strangely a big deterrent. Unconsciously, you sense that the diagnosis will change your life. Yes, forever. And that's a big one. And it's a scary one. How should you think of yourself, you ask yourself. And are you equal to your neurodivergence? Or is it a part of you or bigger than you? Getting the diagnosis can also be a big help on the other side in validating that how you feel, how you perceive the world is not something that you made up. You are not doing this to come across as more, you know, unique or, or special. You are not just making this up or, or being oversensitive to, to things. That being said, the, the diagnosis is in so many cases a double-edged sword, and it can lead to a sort of over-identification with this newly named thing in your life. And at the very beginning, it can feel like a nice way of not trying certain things. I'm autistic, I can't do that. It is important to, to remain conscious of this urge and, you know, try work with it and reframe it. I'm autistic. I do this differently. And the last thing to consider is neurodivergent traits have a significant overlap. 
the presentations can look very, very similar, or it is even possible that you are you will be di diagnosed with you know a combined um, condition. So you it is it is possible that you have autism and ADHD as well. Many of these traits can be present at the same time in autistic, ADHD, OCD, or dyslexic people. If you're stuck in one box and try to find strategies and practices only for one part, is like that parable about, you know, the scientist being able to touch only one part of an elephant. You'll need to discover the whole of your condition and seek the best adaptations for you. The way the medical profession is currently set up, it's, it can be hard to, to find the specialists who are able to view the big picture and will not want to treat you for one thing and that one thing only. Plus, in the UK at least, it is very difficult to go down the diagnostic path and you have to be conscious of that as well. The NHS is chronically overloaded, as we all know, and private providers are overloaded and costly. So it will be a long wait in, in most cases to get that diagnosis. But if you feel that you are neurodivergent, you can't hit the big pause button on your life to start figuring things out when you receive your assessment results, because it can be like one to three to seven years from now, depending on where you live. And the medical model can be still very helpful. So this is, this is a seesaw of the getting a diagnosis and getting an assessment, having absolute upsides and the long wait and you know what it does to you. Where the medical model is helpful, even with its tendency to box us into one category or another, is if you experience that your neurodivergence is debilitating and it's keeping from you from doing the things you want to do in your life, if, for example, you're an ADHD person and you get all the benefits of creative problem solving and a great imagination, but the amount of dopamine your brain can manufacture on its own means you need three hours to get out of bed every morning, then it's only a medical diagnosis of ADHD and professional guidance derived from that that will allow you to get access to the medication that will help your brain make the dopamine for you to function so you can actually live your life. And as a as last important point in, in this CISO type of argumentation, is it's worth remembering the diagnosis is just one milestone in a long journey. You'll have a whole lot of life to live afterwards. And unfortunately, no matter how we try to imagine that the assessment result will solve everything, it won't solve everything for us. So my recommendation is to familiarize yourself with neurodivergence and observe yourself in everyday situations, maybe journal about it, maybe keep habit trackers or energy trackers, or track everyday situations that may be different or, or triggering or difficult for you. Get on the waiting list with either the NHS or if you can cover the cost a private provider because it will take a long time to get your diagnosis. And during the wait, do some tests and learns to see what kind of adjustments and strategies can be helpful for you. Absolutely. Thank you for that. As you were talking, obviously, I'm always coming from a mindset perspective. But one of the things I sort of heard you say is that, like, I think going through this process, it sounds like there's this, well, we all live in a patriarchy and we. it sounds like there's this internal sort of oppression that we have to let go of. And we have to sort of like, yeah. as we move 
as your identity maybe shifts on this journey, you also have to like bear in mind that some of the thoughts that we've been given about what a diagnosis could mean are negative and they've come from the patriarchy and they aren't accidental and society wants you to feel like you are less than, less capable or bad, faulty, defective, all of that junk. So it sounded to me like you're also going to have to, almost what you did with the word weird, like really own what that's going to mean for you in your journey, in your career, in your life, essentially. Absolutely. That's so true because as sad, discovering that you are neurodivergent, that, well, not everybody has to have where they are is when, when talking to people or not everybody is overwhelmed by seemingly normal sights and sounds and, and smells. So that you are different, that it doesn't mean less. It doesn't mean faulty. It means what it is. It's different. And you will have to re-identify, reclaim, and, you know, readjust to what this difference means in your life and you really have to get on board with yourself and be your strongest ally in this absolutely your strongest ally i love that nora what was your experience if you're only as much as you're happy to share but what was your experience sort of discovering your presentations about yourself and what was your experience perhaps working in a more traditional corporate environment yeah my my self-discovery has been a very long process. I always knew that I'm sort of, you know, I, a weird person. I was a weird kid. With 18 months, I just suddenly started to talk in full sentences. Oh, so wow. there was no babbling at all. No, you know, cute little babbling broken words, but definite full sentences. Wow. Um, I was very into different kind of topics or special interests for my entire life. And the world, on the other hand, seemed to be so vast and so confusing at times because I needed very clear rules, guidance, guidelines for things that you can't get in murky social situations yeah. that it confused me all the time. I also needed to and still need to spend a considerable chunk of my time alone in a controlled environment, but I always led with my sensory processing issues. So I, I'm very sensitive to noise, smells, and to, let's say, a cluttered environment with a lot of texture, with a lot of colors, with a lot of objects. So my environment in, uh, in that I, I can work well and live well is a very subdued and controlled one that, you know, has to smell nice, has to be really quiet. So this is something that I always craved very badly. But, you know, when four years ago now, I went on a, a, a sabbatical from my previous big agency job. And I walked through Scandinavia very far from people, very far from noises, very far from artificial lights. Definitely no server rooms with their <laughs> distinct hum in the background, no computers. I felt absolutely transformed and freed. And when I went back after two months of walking across Scandinavia to, um, to an office setting, in a couple of days I was back to my old irritable, grumpy ways. And I just told myself, I became very sensitive to noise. 
but mm. it's been always there. So it was nothing new. But then I started thinking there might be seriously, there might be something seriously wrong with me. Mm. And then I just started to look into how I behave in certain situations, how I, I can't sit in a meeting that runs for three hours where people are just, you know, discussing something without a clear agenda, without action items, without accountability in many cases. And it's just drove me nuts. It just drove me crazy. And I didn't know why. So I started reading up on neurodivergence. And when I read about female autism, especially the subclinical variant, it was just a proverbial light bulb moment for me. So that transformed everything because with this knowledge, you can just go back in your biography and start to make sense of your own experience and, and start to make sense of situations that had been mind-boggling for you for so long. Regarding the corporate world, working for big corporations is full of teaching moments, I, <laughs> I found. I learned, for example, that I am absolutely unsufferable. Um, and it was also true. Uh, I, I made the lives of my colleagues miserable on so, so many occasions <laughs> by persistently asking pointed questions, resisting change if I wasn't spearheading change management myself and mm. being just, you know, irritable most of the time because of my sensory issues. And these, these were my absolutely unconscious, unchecked, autistic traits at play. So a moment of silence for my old colleagues. They deserve it. Uh, I used to suffer from these endless meetings, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, for a long time, I kept asking myself, what was so bothersome for me and what was so productive and enjoyable even for, for the others? And then I realized something, that neurotypical people have a vague but very certain script of how they go about their to-do list, their work, and they need so much less clarity on that in terms of structuring and action items, they will be able to convert the discussion into actions by themselves. Mm. What they need is rather consensus. That feeling of being on the same page with, with everyone else, being safe, feeling validated. But I am unable to derive the pleasant sense of consensus from, from such meetings, you know. Mm. So uh, there is this fundamental difference because I crave structures and I brave, clear next steps. So to zoom out for a moment, I began to see this as a problem of structured versus unstructured time. I have the sense that we are told about the corporate workplace, that our time there, the proverbial nine to five, is structured time. Mm. But it's, I feel that it's a misunderstanding or in some cases even a lie. For a neurodivergent person, this time certainly feels largely unstructured because of that missing script. And I think it feels the same way for, for some neurotypical employees as well. They just don't perceive it as unpleasant or detrimental to their productivity. This is how I learned that bringing more structure into ways of working is an interesting exercise in most organizations, except for the largest enterprises, admin departments, where everyone is replaceable and where structures and guidelines reign absolutely supreme. Mm. So everything is documented and you just can 
you know, go to documentation if you don't understand something because 99% of the cases that you are going to encounter on a daily basis is just covered there. So that's, you know, this fundamental difference of I crave the structure and I have been only given this structure when I worked in one, at one of the largest corporations in the world where a business continuity plan mm. enabled that everything was documented. And in most, even, even in large enterprises, this is not the case. And I wonder why that is. Because it could be so helpful. Meetings with agendas, meetings with action planning and, you know, clear accountability. It hel it's helped by so many great project management softwares. And we don't use it because most neurotypical people don't have this, this, this craving, this drive for, for absolute clarity, because their feeling of safety lies somewhere else. And this has been the biggest realization for me of more than a decade of, of working for, for different types of, of organizations. Mm. It's interesting because when we talk about people, a lot of the listeners will be employed. They may also have a business on the side. They may be freelance. It's interesting because when it sounds, when I hear you talk about these larger companies and the larger businesses, so much of it, it's, it sounds like is the culture of the company, but also the culture of how we view nine to five. I've right. been working full time in a startup and you're, I agree with you. Absolutely. I've always been freelance so I've, um, before this and I've been working in a startup for like the last 10 months and I spend, I can't have a conversation with someone without being like, okay, so my next steps are A, B, and C. Like, I can't just have conversations and then just know mm. what I'm going to produce out of these conversations. I have to have really tangible takeaways, like what is the point of us talking and how do people work for like nine hours straight, eight hours straight? I don't know. So I absolutely hear what you're saying. What does somebody do if, they are working um, for a company, but it's the culture that they find the most challenging in terms of creating a productive environment for them to thrive in. The first step, I would say, is trying to define what you can change. Trying to set up systems for yourself. Drive a few tests and learns. You know, test the waters. How pliable, for example, your, your immediate team is. Mm. Um, and carry these conversations about what would you need to function better? What would you need to be more, not productive, but efficient in your ways of working? And try to change that. If you can change things for yourself, you may have the feeling that you get more self-confident. You get more, you know, comfortable working uh, nine to five, working for, for this company. And try to, you know, widen the circle of, of change. I am a big proponent of I am not leaving until I know that I have exhausted my options. And I think that some organizations are more flexible in terms of or more, you know, receptive in terms of change and in terms of altering the ways of working. If you can understand what management needs whether they are very much a facts and and numbers based person or persons you can maybe build a business case 
XYZ action would lead to an increased output in these projects. It would, it would lead to an increased efficiency in these projects and areas, and it would benefit so and so much um, employees in the organization. That is usually a very convincing thing because if it's feasible to do and to, um, to implement adjustments and it has the imagined or expected output, then change will be possible. But you will have to have this you know, doorstep opportunity. But if an organization is absolutely resistant to, to change, and this is, this is also often the case, then uh, you will have to weigh for yourself how much of you know, your invested time and effort is, is it worth and how detrimental to the resistance in company culture is to your well-being, to your needs, and to your creative or efficient output in your in your day-to-day -day job. And you maybe just have to leave. I, I did that on, on a couple of occasions in, in my life. And it felt freeing. Um, it's it's obviously very scary, and it's obviously, especially in a current economic climate, it's it's a very difficult decision to to make. But then again, you will you will have to weigh for yourself what is it worth to stay in a, a very rigid and very resistant company culture as opposed to just changing and just leaving. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it can be, if you think about it on like a nervous system perspective, it de it really depends what's happening in the workplace. But also I think it can be quite damaging to our nervous system if we think about people having to mask and things like that. Um, yes. It can be sort of easy to think, I've been doing it for so long, it's fine, I can handle it. And you kind of sort of, you know, hold that all inside but um what I've learned from a couple of series of burnouts is that that energy that you're holding in you know sort of those punches as it were it always sort of comes back some way if it doesn't come out in the workplace it comes out some it expresses itself in some other way so totally agree with that yes it absolutely does it absolutely does I agree with you 100% because you are, in the end, if you are just holding it all in, if you are trying to, you know, take it in your stride because you are strong, because you are stronger than that, you ultimately let yourself down. You ultimately cheat yourself. And that's, that's a very unhealthy pattern to, to fall into. As I mentioned, for me, the biggest learning is I have to be my strongest ally. Um, and going through a couple of, of, you know, cycles of burnout myself, I had to realize this, that nobody is going to stand up for me if I don't do this and if I don't try and stay true to my needs. Nobody will do that for me. And no organization, no workplace, no career is worth having multiple burnouts mm. because it's just so incredibly unhealthy. And the long-time consequences are not well understood, not well researched at the moment. But as soon as neurobiology catches up to our 9-to-5 reality and our burnout realities, I think it is going to be a huge eye-opener for, for so many people. So it's, not, it's absolutely not worth just risking burnout for, for, for no reason. How can those with neurodivergent traits be weirdly successful would you say 
especially if you're self-employed as a neurodivergent person, you have a double-edged sword that you, that you wield. And you will have to set up systems for yourself. And this is true for, for someone working for, for a large corporation as well. Although many things are you know, predefined for you, for example, in terms of software that you, that you use, you will have to adapt. But you can tweak it and you can adjust it due to your needs in, in many cases. So step one is really, you know, you will have to set up systems for yourself that are compatible with your needs and that complement how your brain works and that amplify your strengths. And as we found ourselves here at Weirdly Successful again and again and again, we will not find these systems in business school. Yeah. We will not find it in books written for neurotypical entrepreneurs yeah. or even neurodivergent entrepreneurs for that matter, because as we discussed before, you know, two neurodivergent people will be exactly alike. Yeah. This also means that you will have to figure out what your own systems are going to be and how they can support you the best. And there will always be a part of this work that you will need to, again, test and learn. But there's a lot of good news there. You don't have to figure everything out from, you know, zero. If the past few years have taught us anything, is that we can move forward and create things and do good work and have a lot of fires to put out at the same time. Second, it's amazing when you become familiar with what adaptations you need, what sort of environment helps you focus, what's your natural rhythm, what's your natural rhythm of creativity, what allowances can you make for yourself that a, that a nine, nine to five office would not mm. um, provide? And you end up with your own way of running your business if you are self-employed that you would not have been able to achieve in any other way. And even if that is not a classical, you know, competitive advantage, it is definitely something great for your quality of life and your job satisfaction. Um, I mean, if you're self-employed, why are you working for yourself if you have to go file a complaint to yourself for better work <laughs> conditions at the end of the day? So and true. finally, yeah, and finally, you can accelerate this figuring out process and reduce the amount of trial and error if you swap experiences with your neurodivergent peers in and outside your own niche or industry. And also by investing in yourself and always having some of your time and some of your budget as well set aside to learn from those who have gone through this journey and can help you get to your goals faster. Absolutely. Nora, it's been so exciting talking to you. We've been speaking, we've been speaking for 47 minutes. I have a couple more questions to ask you. It's been a delight to dive into your insight. One of the things that I really do want to ask is... What's something that you've achieved that you're the proudest of and how did you do it? Oh gosh. Um, I'm proud of simply being alive. I know this sounds on the one hand pretentious, on the other hand, like I'm trying to somehow circumvent this question. <laughs> um, but otherwise, oh, I, I've always found hard to interpret what pride and, and being proud mm. means. Because for me, this expression of, of being proud does not evoke anything in particular. But mm. there is a German expression that should exist in, in, in English, though. In sich ruhen means resting within oneself. And it means being centered. It's this knowing reassuredness that there is 
power in my existence, that it's self-directed. And for me, that's, that's good enough. And if I can achieve that state, and these days I am, I'm more capable of achieving this state than, than in the past, then I can say that maybe this is something I'm proud of. That's so lovely. Power within oneself that is self-directed. I feel like so much of this conversation, so much of the work that I do with people is about like under, like understanding and discovering what makes you powerful, not like how you fit into society or whatever labels you have, but what makes you unique and how often can you tap into that every day? Like, I love that. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. My next question to you is, what advice would you give to your past self? The first one is don't fight the weirdness and sit with it. You know, learn to vibe with it. You are okay. You will be okay. The second thing is be aware of those who want to forcibly change you in the name of love. Mm. You will discover it's not love. It's not, it's not coming from a place of love. And third if you're comfortable, your work output will be so much better. Take care of yourself. I think these are, these are the things um, I would have benefited <laughs> out of this advice so much. Me too, to be honest. Me too. And my final question for you today is, I want you to imagine that tomorrow you have to rebuild and start again. How would you go about it if that happened? that happened it has happened on many occasions <laughs> uh, so i don't i don't really have to you know reach far in my imagination yeah. so let's assume that we talk about life and career in generic terms here so first i would sense immense anxiety and stress yeah. and have to cycle through a million scenarios of why this has happened what i had done wrong a host of false connections and some real insights would crop up and would crowd my mind. And I'll have to very actively work to get the I've done something wrong loop mm. out of my head. If I, if I can amplify those thoughts by talking or writing about them, that usually helps. But in, in my case, this, this bit took a lot of practice. Mm. But if I can focus on the insights, all good. I can journal about this, analyze my options, and then go about my day. I will start my routine of deep breathing, warm and cold shower, brew myself a delicious cup of filter coffee, mm. and sit down, and at a later point, brew myself another delicious cup of filter coffee, and, and one more, and one more. And then I will, would make a spreadsheet of all my fledgling plans, examining whom to call, what runway do I have? Run a few calculations in, term of, in terms of finances, opportunities. I would really look at what support systems are in place for me. What is in my power to change about the situation? And then I would take a break. I would go for a long walk. And then I would return to my spreadsheet, amend and expand as needed. And then I would begin to implement. Thank you, Nora. It has been such a pleasure speaking to you. If listeners are hearing you and they've listened to this episode and they're really keen to follow the work that you do, where can they find you? They can go to weirdlysuccessful.com or weirdlysuccessful.org. 
and uh, just uh, follow us in social media on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. But I think Weird Successful's website is going to be the best starting point to get acquainted with us. And on the website, listeners have the opportunity to just hop onto one of our curiosity calls. We have, you know, all our specialisms um, that we have also, you know, put in a structured way on the website. But they can just also roll the dice and get someone randomly assigned. How exciting is that? Mm. A random person just picking up the phone in a curiosity call and just talk talk to us um, about neurodivergence, about um, work-life, balance, integrations, frameworks, and systems for 30 minutes. Amazing. That sounds so fun. I might have to give that a try myself. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining. And everyone, thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the No Room for Doubt podcast. If you've loved what you've heard today, you're probably going to want to coach with me one-on-one. Stuck to Unstoppable is my signature coaching program to transform your mindset and your confidence so you can go out and achieve the goals that you want in your life and in your business. Simply go to my website at www.kyramatthews.com to book your free 30-minute consultation. I cannot wait to get unstoppable with you. See you there.